Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. We aim to discuss what worked, what didn't work, what got pulled into future editions, and what Santa didn't leave in your stocking. On this, the eighth day of Edition Wars, we are discussing the second half of the third edition Dungeon Master's Guide 2, one of my favorite books. So, chapter five. So, chapter five. The funny thing about chapter five is that it launches into uh, what I can really only think is kind of a rebuild of something that was in a, a Unearthed Arcana episode that in our real lives just went uh, just went public, right? Right. Now, you and I recorded it a, a while back, and our dear listeners will also have had a delay since they heard it, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it's context, right? It's the, the end chapter of Unearthed Arcana, um, and they're, they're kind of recapitulating some of the same stuff. I think when we got to that chapter, I said, hey, I think this is the DMG too. Yeah. But I think that book was published first, right? And this one was published after that? Right, by, by a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, that book came out really close to the same time as um, the revised edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, this had first printing two years later. Okay, right? yeah. So. so so that was first, and it was good enough material from that book to transport it. Right, and, and it, it isn't a one-to-one transfer, right? It, mm-hmm. it is right. getting reworked and... They have sort of a new angle on it, that kind of thing, which frankly is what you want to see, right? Um, oh yeah, you don't just want something moved whole cloth. <laughs> yeah, it sort of means that where in in our uh, modern day, the benighted year of 2020, um, Unearthed Arcana is the free public playtest, while in the very beginning of 3.5, they monetize their playtest book, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because, okay, by 2003, the internet and the you know Wizards of the Coast website were both robust enough and well-traveled enough to um, to support like a, a, an online public playtest if that's what they'd wanted to do, but no one else had been doing that at the time, so why would they? Right, and also there's, an, there's, a, there's a question there of audience, right? Sure. Um, if you think that the majority of your audience, whether right or wrong, if you think that the majority of your audience is not accessing that, then you don't want to do a playtest with just that just that uh, platform, sure, right, and so you can you can um, rationalize that choice because you, what you would say is, well, we want to be inclusive. We don't want to cut out uh, the biggest majority of our population, which are older white males who aren't necessarily online right now. They're playing the game and in the bookstores buying books. Sure. Anyway, uh, we get into the contact section, right, and we get some examples of uh, contacts, and because this is. They're dead. They need to be stated at class levels. Mm-hmm. And then there's favors provided and no charge and frequency. And so that's kind of it's kind of interesting as just a set of ideas. These range from you know favors they do for you once a week um, for something like translating any non-magical script all the way to you know once. I'll do this for you once, and that's that's all you get for free. But when the favor is smoothing over trouble with local authorities or gathering intelligence about any one local person, well, maybe you're getting your money's worth out of that contact. Maybe that's actually worth what what you're hoping for. Um, 
or the contact is a fifth level cleric who will provide you with a cure light wound spell once per month. Well, that's a little stingy. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> like, compare that to the um, sixth level cleric who's smoothing over trouble with local authorities. Like, that seems like a very much more consequential help. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. But I, I get what they're going for. They're going for a range of of types of favors or help, and they're going for a range of frequencies. So I get it. Sure. I get it. Um, notably, since I've referenced the Inner Arcana so, so much here, there isn't a sense of you get contacts when you level, and they are a, a benefit of leveling in a specific way. That That doesn't seem to be what they're doing here. So I'm glad to see that going. Yeah, this is more of a role, like a let's formalize it, but it's still mostly role playing because to formalize it and say, you know, I actually like this table, table 5.1, the sample context table, because it allows you to kind of put a slight bit of context on the relationship between the contact and the party. Yeah. Right. And it's just one sentence. It's not this huge, extensive, you know, table or set of information or set of rules about on under what conditions will they do this for you and all that kind of crap like none of that is in here this is just some very pure basic hey here's a one sentence reminder for the dm of what this particular npc can do for the party if the situation is right and who decides that it's you and so we don't need to put it in the table and there you go yep and yeah great it it works uh then we get hirelings uh Mm -hmm. hirelings are broken into uh adventurers and specialists um, adventurers do what they say on the tin. They're extra characters with a class and level that mm-hmm. you, you hire to tag along. Great, let's do it. Then um, specialists are um, people with a specific set of skills. Right. They developed a very specific set of skills over a lifetime, mm-hmm. and you need to return their daughter. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> But there's a whole table of progression for them mm-hmm. with their key ability and skill modifier. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, it's necessary to specify where they're getting their bonuses, which I think is a little okay. I mean, uh, but but remember, this this is the edition of build everything out like a PC. I know, but this is a little much. Uh, you know, th- so this is exactly the opposite of what I just said about the sample context table, right? right? Like the sample context table is, hey, you know, here's, you know, a wizard might do this for the party if they're a contact or a, a cleric might do this or a rogue might do this. Uh, and then it's up for the DM to figure that out, right? Um, but with so- with a little bit of guidance and the guidance is mostly role-playing focused, whereas this hireling section is definitely a mechanical set of guidance, to help you have the hireling, whether it's a specialist or an adventurer, and how much do they charge, and what are their skills, and this person, if they if they work with the party, and so therefore are in the game traveling with, or or literally in the same room with the party, you need their stats, and here they are. Like yep. here's where they come from. Here's the you know, and it's uh, well, it's overwrought. To me, so but, so yeah. honestly, I take the sense from it that. A designer sat down and figured out what their progression should be based on you know NPC gear by level, which is a mm-hmm. totally normal thing in right. in uh, in third. Mm-hmm. And then they needed to include that table and didn't decide to just chop the last two columns, which they totally could have done, and no one right. would have cared. That's fine. 
we already more time than it's really worth. Yeah. Um, interesting that they specify that um, the the specialists are assumed to be human. You've got to apply race modifiers on your own. Yeah. That is some peak third ed. Yeah. Well, this whole this whole little section is peak third ed. That was kind of my point. Was you know this is ex- precisely the third edition way to present this information. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some unique abilities. Additional fees, right? The unique, unique abilities uh, on the next page are pretty cool, um, and I, I like the. I actually really like the price list. I will. I will go out of my way, way to say. No, no, that price list, that needed to maybe be in the DMG. That is, um, that's practically equipment because it's mm-hmm. you know, specialties for all kinds of tasks that you would hire someone for. That we've always put that kind of content in the DMG, if not the player's handbook. It's phenomenally useful, and um. There would be nothing in the world wrong with grabbing this table and shoving it into fifth edition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, like the the amount of money that the amount of money you pay a diplomat is actually a really interesting one because mm-hmm. it's bribes, guys. It, you, you're right. Yep. You're delegating mm-hmm. your bribery. That's what that mm-hmm. is. Right. And that's neat, actually. Um, the, the numbers are weird, but yeah, <laughs> the, the numbers are, are weirdly specific and the, the sage costs are unbelievably hilarious yeah. right. because of, of course. how the, the costs of information gathering have changed edition over edition. Like as we discussed in first edition, the costs of hiring a sage are astronomical, right? Because that person truly is the expert in that topic that you are asking them about. Because that person truly has student loans to pay. Right, of course, uh, because they can't get a job. Whereas <laughs> whereas by 3.5, uh, there, are, there are so many graduates in that field that's driven the price down <laughs> right. for their yeah. work. And yeah. like, it's history majors. Like, I'm saying it's history majors, all right? No, no. Here's 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 what I hear you saying. What you're saying is, the first edition sages were the fully tenured, full professors. Yeah. Second edition sages were the uh, the non tenured but on the tenure track professors. Yeah. 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 The sages in third edition are the adjuncts. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yep. They, they're they're possibly grad students, right? Who are doing TA work to get by. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. That is 100% what I see here. Yeah. 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 Um, But yes, but I get that. Again, this table is a nice one. It does actually. It is really cool. You know, in a small compact area gives quite a bit of information that is extremely helpful or ignorable. And because it's small enough, if you ignore it, it's not taking up too much space. Yep. Um, Then table five, five unique NPC abilities. Like, (laughs) Uh, so so it's surrounded by a huge block of text that makes my eyes glaze over and not want to read it. But mm-hmm. holy hell, is that table grabby? Whoa! Vestigial twin and uh, <laughs> grave touched and uh, <laughs> poison laced yeah. prodigy doom watcher arcane adept like, abysmally wretched. <laughs> I don't know what's happening, but 
go on. <laughs> but, but like the the huge problem with this is that they cordon them off to NPCs. You just mm-hmm. wrote a ton of really interesting stuff, and you're only giving to the NPCs, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. get out. Yeah, but unfortunately, in true third edition style, the next two full pages, actually three full pages, mm-hmm. are given to uh, basically one or two sentence description of the unique ability, and then several sentences of plus one or two for the check of the whatever skill, and one d six points per level, and you know the the little nickel and dime, yeah, you know stats or whatnot. Uh, which that makes my eyes glaze over. Right. It's it's very dense text that loses all of the like wonderment. All of the sense of wonder. All of the yeah. sort of eye popping. I met an NPC who does what? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That those imply. I'm just going to tell right. you. They they missed the trick here. The trick is to turn this into a D100 table, and. Mm make that a character creation step. Right. Yeah. But a lot of these are actually negative. So yes, I know. Right. But so right. But then you have all of the PCs, all the players whose PC gets a really negative one complaining incessantly. So I completely understand why this is a unique NPC ability table. Well, right. Then you just need to go to some, some older edition content that is, (laughs) Radical lack of sympathy uh, on the yes. DM's part. That's, mm-hmm. that's the next step. Right. Yeah. Okay. You So we're on the same page tonight. Wow. <laughs> Have you been drinking? <laughs> uh, water so far. I, oh, I can well. go break out the, uh, the harder stuff if I got to. <laughs> um, here's, here's what I wish of this section. And, and as far as I can tell, it doesn't really do it. What I wish was they took this unique ability section of talking about, you know, odd or strange or you know, whatever NPCs and connect that back to the contacts in the beginning of this chapter or to the hirelings. And you can, you can connect the contacts and hirelings to this by, you know, allowing for, you know, greasing those wheels a little bit like, well, the contact can provide you with, with information, but if you want to know more, you have to go talk to, you know, old Hal down the street who is grave touched or is abysmally wretched. And the only way he can make a living is because, you know, this, this thieves guild took pity on him and, you know, is, is sending people who want to know certain information to him. And then he gets paid his one or two gold for that. Inf- you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, he, he's just a Nosferatu from world of darkness. It's not, it's not that bad. <laughs> He <laughs> probably still has some really good like bloodline, but is that yeah, not what we're doing? Maybe. Did I did I lose the plot? Wait, bloodlines? Are we talking about birthright? Could be. Could be. Let's Could talk about be birthright. birthright. <laughs> but but you know what I'm saying? Like uh, they yeah, spent a lot sure. of text on this section, but then they didn't. It's kind of just hanging out here on its own as a hey, if you want to give an NPC a weird ability, here you go. But you well, know they could have really well right that that sort of modality of presentation uh, is the same as what we saw in UA, right? Mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. they want to make it fully modular so they don't hook it all up together. Like you, They want you to be able to sort of drop in, drop out as much as you want. I'm sympathetic. It's a little frustrating, 
there's not a good answer unless you want to present the larger thing as the full drop in, drop out. Yeah, but see, here's the thing with this section, because they do that in earlier in this book as well, and I'm kind of okay with it in certain places, but in this particular section, they could just put a big sidebar on, you know, they love their sidebars, they could put a big sidebar saying, here's how to incorporate sure. the things in this chapter if you want to make them incorporated together. If not, use them piecemeal, is fine, but if you want to incorporate them, here's some tips, right? Sure. And they don't do that. Well, and... You know they're they're about to sort of recapitulate the whole idea uh, from the top with sample complex NPCs. Right. So let me read you a sentence from this section. The statistics blocks on the next twelve pages. <laughs> yeah. Snore. Anyway. <laughs> well, and and part of that has to do with just how excessive. Um, the stat blocks are. Stat blocks are in 3.5. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, totally. Literally, it's like one per page. <laughs> right. Well, and yeah. their their concept of what represents a, a complex NPC is they multiclassed. Right. Mm-hmm. That That's it. That's, that's the tweet. Really? Yeah. Like, yeah. that's complex enough to, to, to carry this idea? Okay. Yeah. Well, because complex to play, because if the DM is is playing this NPC and actually it matters what these abilities are, the DM has to know them. That is accurate. So, and also a lot, like for example, the very first one, the anti paladin, comes with the fiendish heavy warhorse servant. Okay, so sure. now I have to know both of those stat blocks. Yep. The one after that, the arcane mercenary, comes with a toad familiar. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know. I mean. Yeah, no lies detected. That's that's how it do. So, um, is there anything in any of these? St- I mean, we can quickly move through this section. But is there anything in any of these stat blocks that you particularly want to uh, point out? Or um, they're they're NPC builds that are multi-classed. They have mm-hmm. all the magic items appropriate to their level. Uh, as with any multi-classing, there are plenty of good reasons to question whether they represent their CR in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's always going to be a, a thing. You know, let's hope they manage to like build for power in some way. But when you're giving this NPC, the Undead Master, Craft Staff, Craft One, Craft Wondrous Item, they did not build <laughs> for power. They built yeah. for someone might actually do this. That's not a bad right. thing, but it does mean that the CR calculation is bunk. Right. Anyway. Um, we can move on. There's nothing else of any great value here to me. Okay. Um, and then there's a little section on reading the stat block because it's a new format. So they have to give you all of the info for reading it. And that takes literally two pages. (laughs) Yeah. That's not, that's not great. Yeah. Um, and then that's the end of the chapter. So, (laughs) I mean, um, I hate to say it, but this chapter's a, compared to the earlier parts of this book, this chapter's a little thin. Um, but you know, I'm saying that with the full understanding that if I was DMing and I needed some NPCs that were similar to these twelve NPCs, I would probably appreciate this material. Um, not not necessarily if I was going to use it whole cloth, but just seeing what a designer statted out. You know what I mean? 
and seeing how they, you know, how they sort of did it and what CR designation they gave it. Um, and, and that would probably help me with my prep. Yeah. But, you know, looking back on this, this is, this is the type of material that doesn't age very well because it's not backwards or forwards compatible. Actually. So. Yep. Like it, these are NPCs you could very plausibly need to, you know, grab very suddenly and, mm-hmm. and apply mm-hmm. in your game. And so a collection of those is great. This isn't enough to be a, a lasting go-to. Right. But fine, whatever. Which brings us to chapter six. Yep. Chapter six is characters. Um, and so there's, there's definitely interesting stuff happening here. Um, I'm, I, I'm already kind of hooked. If we want to really talk about apprenticeship as a part of your character, mm-hmm. that's definitely cool to me. Yeah. So the so the basis of the first part of this is that there's a new feat called apprentice and a new feat called mentor, and so basically, um, you have to be first level if you're going to take the feat, the apprentice feat, and to take the mentor feat you have to have eight ranks in at least two of the four skills associated with your mentor category. And you must have graduated from your apprenticeship. So, so this sparked an idea in me reading it just now mm-hmm. that I think is money left on the table, certainly for fifth and probably for third and fourth also. Mm-hmm. Having an apprentice feat that has an internal way that it tells you that the feat changes when you hit certain milestones would be awesome. Right? That feat doesn't do that old thing for you anymore. Like you have leveled up from uh, uh undergrad to, to grad student. Mm-hmm. Right? You're still overall a student, but Right. Right. So you're still an apprentice, but it doesn't provide you with the same ability that it did when you first took the feat. Now it's going to do this for you. Right. But I think it would be great for your character sheet to not really say apprentice anymore that word doesn't describe you it'd be great if your feats like lived with you and described you mm-hmm, anyway mm-hmm. um that's totally not how feats are in third or in fourth it's not how they currently are in fifth but i don't think it's that big of a stretch because feats are allowed to be fairly intensive mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right right and i think that i have players who would really go for um, okay, I'm going to buy a feat that does something kind of nice now, but I know that there's going to be a story beat because I bought this feat that really makes it sing, right? And it turns into something really cool for me. It, it strikes me as very similar to the idea of a, a magic item that grows in power as you grow in power. For sure. For sure. And that's always a really it can be a rich source of of lore and of you know of role playing if the player wants to do it and if the DM wants to do it. And if they don't, it's still a cool magic weapon, so whatever. But now, now you are getting a chapter ahead of us here, Sam. That's next chapter. Right, but I, I'm just saying, like, the, in terms of that idea, like, and so that strikes me very much like, you're right, I don't think that would have worked in third edition, because that's not how feats worked in third or fourth. But in fifth edition, it could actually do that. Yeah. Um, but you would, I mean, do you make them buy a new feat, or does it just change? So at fourth level, it changes into uh, Journeyman. So, so, so my answer is to not hang it off of level progression so much, 
uh-huh. but but to say like uh, when you complete this you know this personal arc and you know and, and the thing happens you stop using you always have bullet point one you mm-hmm. lose bullet point two and you gain bullet bullet points three and four maybe right so see that to me that's a home campaign thing because that's easy to write for a home campaign that's harder to write for general so, consumption so it's, it's harder to write for general consumption but if you uh custom wrote it to a hardback adventure mm-hmm. then i think right. you could really make it work because yeah. tell you what i bet i could make that work for dragon heist like if i wrote a feat that was about you run troll skull mm-hmm and at a, at some point in the story, Troll Skull go, goes from being like a, a relatively unimportant dive to okay, now you're kind of starting to eat into um, Dernan's business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, he's Dernan; he doesn't give a shit. But whatever, right? <laughs> right? Caring about things is not what Dernan does best. But. Mm-hmm. Um, like the awning portal takes notice of you and you're now famous. That could be pretty great. Actually. I bet I could Mm -hmm. write that and run that in a way that was great. And I, I mean, we're way off topic, but (laughs) you know, uh, spitting some ideas for our listeners might be fun for them. I mean, I, yeah, that's, that's a very intriguing idea. Um, Huh. I mean, don't worry. I can already hear Jeremy Crawford being like, you do not want that. That is too much for any actual user who is not you to understand. Fair. No, but like like you said, if you if you if you were to put it into some sort of hardback adventure that was um very specific to a situation that must happen in that in that adventure, right? Must if anyone cares enough to buy the feet, certainly. Well, no, I mean, I mean, so regardless of the feat, there there are certain events that happen in these hardback adventures that the events happen no matter what, no matter no matter how the DM tweaks it or changes it. Certain events always happen every time that adventure is run. Sure, right. And so, if there's two or three of those in each adventure, you can set the the feat to sort of. Uh, you know, t- tick the the clock at those certain events, and that forwards that feat. And then when that second event happens, it forwards the feat. So now you're at the sort of third rank of that. I, although I hesitate to use that word rank, but you're at the sort of third iteration of that yeah. feat now. Yeah. And that opens the door for you to maybe take, you know, another different feat or something like if you wanted to chain them. Although you don't necessarily want to chain them in fifth edition, but. Um, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think it could feel complex, but I mean, like I said, as long as you key it to something that is obviously not going to be left out of the adventure when it's run, then I don't see that as a problem. Yeah. Cause not every, not, not every PC is going to take it either. Right. Like, yeah, you know, but you know, I, I think that like, B plots and C plots have a place in big adventures. And so like maybe a bunch of different players, like all have their own thing going in the background mm-hmm. that is leveling right. up their, mm-hmm. yeah. their, their one like big story feat. Right? I think that could be yeah. cool. And, you know, it, it does kind of also fold in some of the um, character theme stuff from fourth ed, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. late fourth development that, 
is so interesting, and I wish it had been a thing when my group was actively playing. <laughs> so we're way, way off track. <laughs> Weird. I know. How odd. That never happens. Anyway, uh, so this section continues on talking about um, sort of uh, different different types of or different expectations of the apprentice and different mentor types and different uh, bonuses or benefits or, or whatnot that, uh, that a mentor can give you and what happens if you need to get a new mentor and how do you become an ex apprentice and sort of, sort of housekeeping type things I would call that. Yeah. Um, and then it goes on to talk about mentorship and how you would be a mentor and, you know, what happens if you lose an apprentice and what can you grant to an apprentice? And, and it's a pretty, uh, I have to say that it's, it's a, it's, there is a lot of mechanical hootie hoo in here, but it's also written well enough and elaborated on enough that you can kind of ignore the mechanical hootie hoo and, and just get the idea. And it makes sense. Yeah. And it really hangs together well. So I actually like this section quite a bit. Yeah. I, uh, I agree with that. And uh, because the, the apprentice mentor relationship is probably uh, a PC to an NPC uh, in one direction or the other. Uh, it really folds into contacts quite nicely. Uh, and, you know, if you're using the um, group patrons of Tasha's, give this a look. Let it inform your thinking about giving one or two of the PCs, you know, a, a different texture of relationship with the patron for some of the kinds of patrons. Like a a strong mentorship connection within a military outfit is is really fun because it suggests that one or two of the PCs are being groomed for command. Right. That that makes sense. That's pretty cool. Uh, especially if everyone in the group is in on the fact that part of their story is being groomed for command. And it's not everyone's story necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, next up we get running a business. Yeah, interesting to me because it's uh, what almost two whole paragraphs of uh, downtime activity in uh, either the player's handbook or the DMG, and I think it might get. Uh, I think it's rehashed in in um, Xanathar's when they overhaul a bunch of the downtimes to involve complications and rivals and such. Right. But this takes a lot more. Um, because um, it's a bunch of different kinds of business. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. Only because it actually spells out different businesses and lists primary, secondary skills and resources and capital and risk. And I mean, like this is a, uh, again, this is another section where there's a lot of little sort of mechanical hootie hoo in here, although not as much of the plus two, minus two stuff that drives me nuts. Um, but, you know, this is sort of a framework for, okay, if you're a DM and, and you're, you know, your players are going to uh, dabble in one of these types of businesses. Here are the things you need to be thinking about. Oh. Um, and here's how to frame this in your mind so that you can deal with it appropriately in the game. And I appreciate that. Um, and then it has like some profit modifiers and initial investments and things like that. And, uh, you know, this is, um, you know, do, do you want to play, um, you know, um, ledgers and, 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 you know, in paychecks or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's to some people, this was deathly boring. 
Well, right. This is this is not a part of the game they want to play. To some people, this just ticks all the right boxes because it's about you know a, a sort of realistic way to get a set income for the party uh, in a way that if you're playing a game with with lots of intrigue and lots of city works, you could really use this. I mean, it's, it's helpful. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in this is third ed. A a different story way to fill up the progress bars on your magic items with their gold progress bars could be fun. Um, I definitely do have players for for whom this is five hundred percent their jam. Put this right in their veins. Mm-hmm. Uh, they knew who they are listening to this, and then I also have players who tend to sit right next to them when we're able to play face to face. Who. Um, would sooner have all their blood extracted than let this near them. <laughs> right. <laughs> they also know who they are. And and this is and this is very much that kind of section. It's it definitely will will thrill some people and will bore to tears other people. Uh, big tables of of pluses and minuses, I, I find pretty tedious. I'm gonna say. Well, sure. Um, but then there's then there's the business related encounters table. Getting better. Getting a lot better. Which then you know has uh, has descriptions of those items, uh, those those, and they're not all encounters. You know, it's not a wandering monster table. It's well, there might be sabotage or infestation or an accident or you know natural disaster or an unusual or important patron. I mean, these are things that you know uh, how to spice up the workday if you're you know. Right, you might be in the middle of negotiations in the next town over, and you get an urgent message from whoever is watching the shop back home that says, "Hey, you need to come home right now. This crap is going on, and you need to deal with it." Yeah, well, and some of these, like uh, number four on that table, bad weather, just make me think of Pendragon and the times the weather crit on us, <laughs> and we knew we were going to be broke that season, and there's a really good chance we we're going to lose our wives and kids to the plague. Right. Yeah. Less likely in D&D, I'll grant you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, less likely, but still. And it has a, has a great piece of art in this chapter, too, on page 188. It has Gronka uh, telling Krusk to mind his own business. And then when you look up at the top, Gronka's bar is right next to Krusk's tavern <laughs> with a tiny little alleyway in between them. And they're both standing in the street yelling at each other. <laughs> City orc bars, man. What can I tell you? Yeah. And there's a little kid in the background whose mom is trying to pull him away, and the kid's pointing like, hey, look, mom. It's great. <laughs> yeah, if you look at the kid's proportions, I'm pretty sure that's a full-grown halfling. Oh, no. No, I don't think so. That's a little uh, kid. Okay. <laughs> it's gotta be. Look at the... the at that, I'm assuming that's a human woman. I, I'm gonna tell you, Sam... A, a full-grown halfling man and a human woman can hold hands in the street if they want. Uh, but, yeah. How dare okay. you? I, yeah, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying <laughs> is she's just sort of holding his hand like it was her kid. No, it, no she is. Um, not just, like – the, the kid's face looks very weird to me. Is yeah, the, kid, the kid's face is, lacks a little tiny bit of detail. And um, this so has it, again been us describing art in a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Well, we were so great at that. So, you know. <laughs> but still, I encourage you, if you have this book, check it out. It's a, it's a very entertaining picture. Because <laughs> the thing is that, that Gronka and Krusk are both half-orcs. 
So, uh, you know, the, the humans in the scene are reacting like, oh, crap, the half-orc bar owners are fighting again. We got to get out of this area. It's just hilarious to me. It's just yeah. hilarious. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, we get through all of the encounters, the descriptions of the encounters. We get the teamwork benefits, sort of a, a whole other layer of mechanics and features on top of everything you get from everything else. Um, I like the idea of this on a certain level, but the implementation can take a long walk of a short pier. I mean, the implementation is, is pure third edition and I don't want to say there's not a way to do this in third edition, but the mechanics make this very clunky and and I don't, you know, the thing is, I don't know third edition well enough to know if there is a good way to do this, but it feels like there's not just because of the nickel and dime plus minus aspect of bonuses and feats and feat progression and prestige classes and attribute bonuses that right, and stacking sure. versus not stacking versus every, I mean, like all of those things lead to a very minutia based character build and when you try to set on top of that a teamwork type of mechanic that only relies on well how many ranks of a certain skill does 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 the person that you're designating the leader of the task have versus who's going to actually be part of that group and be able to help with that task that's based on how many ranks they have like eh, eh, okay let's just not let's just not and yeah, I think we can pretty safely skip this. It is all based, as you say, on uh, the team, the task leader having a feat or or not, and a spell and some number of uh, ranks in a skill, and then the, the team members having either an ability score or prereq or a skill rank, a much lower skill rank prereq or whatever. Um, it's mostly not stuff you're gonna want to deal with because referencing all of this during play is going to be eight kinds of pain. Um, This is not a good subsystem to sit on top of everything else in 3.5. If it had been implemented from the beginning and fully integrated, I think there could be something interesting here, though not this, uh, you know, skill and feet prereq approach because building for these prereqs is stultifying. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, part of the reason for that is that um, third edition, if I'm recalling correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's heavy into niche protection. Uh, it's certainly heavy in, into niche protection. Uh, nowhere so much as the trap finding feature of the rogue, right? Uh, but but think about that as it's heavy into niche protection. Oh, but now let's put a subsystem on top of it that requires certain members to have certain numbers of ranks in certain skills, and other members to have granted fewer, but still also have ranks in certain skills. And you suddenly like, it just feels like you're asking for me to, if I'm going to plan to make sure this can happen when we all hit eighth level or whatever, like you're asking me to plan out eight levels of skills for certain skills, just so that we can. So you're asking me to not protect my niche anymore, just so that I can help with this type of task eight levels later. Uh, yeah, and, and that's absolutely um, that's absolutely the way prestige classes worked in in third. So there's nothing surprising about that. Like the narrative goal is so clear, and they don't get there. 
because what they want is a way to get to combo moves. Right. Like fastball specials and the the cool combo moves and chrono trigger. Like that is what they're trying to say. And they don't get close. Sorry guys. If anyone listening to this worked on this book, I'm sorry this did not hit that mark. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just just being real with you. Um so moving on. The next thing up is a companion spirit, which is really kind of a different form of group patron, I guess, in a way. It's it's sort of your group totem. Um, it's sort of your uh, hidden you know, magical patron sort of deal. Um, and you, you perform this ritual to um, improve a companion spirit uh, across various tiers at various character levels. Well, when the lowest level character in the group is a given level, um, that kind of thing. And so that's really interesting. Um, in in principle, it's kind of kind of odd. Um, I guess I like it in the same way that I like a lot of the stuff in the late late three point five Tome of Magic or Book of Nine Swords. Um, but I remember reading this essentially stripped of context. I, I you know opened the book to this section more or less, and didn't even do a deep read, did an impressionistic read, and it really stuck with me. I mean, it stuck to me like a, a burr on wool. And Like in a way, wait, wait, you mean in a good way or a bad way? In a good way. Uh, it proceeded to inspire a, a whole school of magic in a LARP that I uh, wrote and ran with um, my wife and a bunch of my friends, um, we built mystery cults around this idea. Okay. Right. But as I say, in a totally impressionistic way, not in me actually going back and looking at the text and seeing how they did it. Cause I didn't care about that at all. That, that wasn't ever my goal. Yeah. So, so let me tell you the, the problem I have with this. Yeah. Hit me. So, uh, in the sidebar, let me read the, the first couple sentences to the audience. It says, Companion spirits are intentionally without personalities of their own, and they don't directly interact with the PCs. In a group full of characters, familiars, animal companions, cohorts, and other NPCs, the disembodied personality of the companion spirit is just one more voice in the tumult. But if the group wants to interact with its companion spirit, you can have it communicate in some fashion and give it whatever personality you wish. Okay, fine. Thanks for giving me permission to give it a personality. However, what this says to me is they wrote this and they gave the wrong name to it. Sure. Because companion spirit, to me, means either influential or relational entity that has a relationship with the whole group. Sure. Yeah. Right. And 
basically what they've written is a here's how you do a ritual to call one of the companion spirits to the team and here's how you improve it and here are the benefits it can give you for example it can uh, provide magical communication between team members it can enhance the team's social dominance or enhance the team's stealthiness or uh, share abilities between team members um, allow that or whatever Um, um, but it doesn't have a personality and it doesn't communicate with you because it would just be another voice in the crowd. Like uh, that's not a that's, companion spirit. Then that's something else. It's, it's really weird reasoning too. Yeah. It's very weird reasoning. Um, so I feel like the idea here has some interest to me, but the way it's written is, is hampered by, how it's written or the, the, the idea is hampered by how it's written, I guess is the best way to say that. Sure. Sure. What this actually wants to be as written without giving the companion spirit a personality is the shared asset, like teamwork card of um, Warhammer fantasy. Like, okay. At least in Warhammer fantasy third edition, you have a, a separate character card for your team that describes like what holds your team together and what kinds of things you do really well, and it's got a like a party tension track for punishing you when you're jerks to each other because it does. Um, it's a really really neat idea because shared assets are super fun, but it, it winds up being a much better iteration of this than than this is because there's a good reason for there not to be a personality on the other end. Right. Well, so here, here's the, here's the thing, right? About this, what what really strikes me about this is this should be the teamwork feats. Yeah. Right. Like this, this is what they should have written in the section above, and instead of calling it companion spirit, call it the teamwork feats, because the thing is that these things progress. So when you summon the companion spirit or whatever, initially it's a tier one or whatever benefit, and then you can actually do the improving ritual to get up to second tier, third tier. And so those, those examples of things that the benefit, the benefits of having the spirit with you, like uh, sharing abilities between team members or uh, giving uh, enhancing social dominance or enhancing the team stealthiness, those have tiers and the higher the tier is, the better you all are at it or the better that, that benefit works between and amongst you in the party. And that is the teamwork thing that I was looking for in the last section. Yep, I agree with that. And wasn't, you know, and so I, this this section just made me scratch my head. And it was like, if I was a video game, I would have a big question mark above my head right now. Right. Now, this, this isn't going to give you combo moves, which is what they're trying to do in the other one. True, but they could call that something else. <laughs> give me much more about, I get a feature from being a good team member. And, and we sank this into a shared magic item, because that's what it is. Right. If there's um, a gold cost and an XP cost, you just told me it's a shared magic item. That's awesome. That's an awesome idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it means that's that why have, I said it's named in, inappropriate. It's named wrong. It's yeah. Named wrong. Like your Romans, these are your household gods mm-hmm. that you you level up. I mean, that's awesome. Do it. Yes. Go on. You you, you would never see something like really called out as being that in third edition, but that's great. Like give me a whole setting of that 
like making this the a part of the core experience of a new setting, I am in. Oh, am I in? Um, I, I am. I am as into this as I am into uh, piety and Theros. Man, it's great. Or like using this like as a group variant on on piety. If you are, if you, if your whole story is that you're collectively a mystery cult to one particular god instead of being adherents of a bunch of different gods. And to be fair, the examples they give through the next several pages are examples. There's a chain companion spirit. There's a corrosion spirit. There's a flame. There's a lens. There's a frost. There's a lightning. There's a rampart companion spirit. I mean, so there's all of these different examples of these and, and they're kind of cool, right? And leaving a lot of personality is such a missed opportunity. Mm hmm. Right. So, you know, like I, yeah, that's, it's just a puzzling section to me because it's such a cool idea. I just feel like it's implemented slightly wrong in part, almost just because they, they made it, they named it that way and made it an entity. And if you're going to make it an entity with influence, it needs to have a personality. If you're just going to make it an item, then don't call it a companion. Or don't don't give it aspects of being an entity. Make it an item, mm-hmm. uh, and and it sings if you do that. Yep, agreed. Well, and th- their set of general and specific characteristics, some sort of odd ideas, right? Mm-hmm. But whatever, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but, but I'm gonna say, uh, looking at. Um, like the, the Frost Companion, mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time not seeing that as maybe some sort of cult of Aurel. Mm-hmm. Maybe if one of us had just written a product about that, it would be really nice to be able to incorporate <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. This is where uh, you plug your product, Sam. Right. Well, so, uh, but here, here's the funny thing about that, right? This, this is very much like that feat that you were talking about. Cause what happens is you get this first tier benefit, then you get the second tier benefit. The third tier benefit replaces the first tier benefit, right? Go. So it kind of has that interwoven set of advancing skills or advancing abilities that you were asking for previously. Uh, but yes, you want me to plug my product. I wrote a product for Rhyme and the Frost Maiden called The Creed of Oral, and it is on the DMs Guild for $4.99. It's 23 pages, uh, and it tells you how to put the Cult of Oral in your Rhyme and the Frost Maiden game. And the reason I did that is because there is no Cult of Oral in that book, and it drives me crazy. So uh, we can move on now. <laughs> Very good. Go buy Sam's stuff. Sam's good. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, so I uh, thank you for that, sir. Got your back. Then we get to designing a prestige class. Yeah, this is really good information to have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if only prestige classes were a better idea than they are, because uh, the mechanical prereqs are such a such a three point five ism that they frustrate me. Well, like I said, part part of the frustration with with this book is a lot of it is neither backwards compatible nor forwards compatible. Right. But uh, uh, prestige classes in particular. Right. But writing some advice like laser focused on third party publishers and hackers. Mm-hmm. God bless them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. They actually even also give a rationale about why the requirements are so stringent and whatnot. 
Right. I think that it's misguided. <laughs> sure. I'm not disagreeing with that. I just think it's funny. It's probably the smallest sidebar in the book. <laughs> yeah, accurate. But what I do like is they talk about example accomplishments, right? That is the thing I actually wanted prestige to be about. I want a prestige to feel earned in a narrative way, not a mechanical way. That's ultimately my whole issue with prestige classes. Well, that and um, they things that are often very narratively cool just have nothing to do with your gameplay loop, and so they're no help to you. The Shadow Dancer has a really bad problem of being for no one. <laughs> no kidding, really? Oh, man. That's... Yeah. Like it's a bunch <laughs> of really good stealth features, but it doesn't make you good at rogue gameplay. It doesn't make you good at monk gameplay. It only very arguably makes you good at ranger gameplay. It, it just doesn't engage with the idea that your starting class establishes how you're going to play. And not all prestige classes have that problem. Don't get me wrong. Right. But man, I was reviewing Shattered Answer for a Tribality article a couple of years back, and it just um, left me sort of thinking, this is for who now? Sometimes the name being really cool pulls people in. Right. Right. And and that was especially a thing. Shattered Answer came out in the DMG, and even in the 3.5 DMG, they didn't all the way have their act together on utility at the table of this prestige class. A lot of them, most of them, have some level of significant utility problem. Mm -hmm. The ones that don't are the ones that are um, prestige classes for multi-class builds in the first place. So like your Eldritch Knight and your Mystic Theurge kind of deal. Mm -hmm. You're a arcane trickster. Those work fine because they know what they're there for. You're you've already consented to split your your gameplay loop, right, between rogue play and mage play or whatever. Um, anyway, way off topic again. <laughs> Shocker. But but right, like nothing I'm going to find in here is setting out to fix that. That fundamental issue. Yeah, I mean, like you said, or you know, uh, this section is really for okay. You you think you want to create some prestige classes and publish them under the OGL? Have at it. Here's some guidelines for you. Right, and there's a sidebar on. Oh yeah, we really made paladins and monks miserable design prestige classes for, didn't we? (laughs) Ooh, because they did. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. You picked up this prestige class? Well, you can't go back to your base class. So when you run into this prestige class, get bent. Yeah. <laughs> Unless there's a specific clause that permits you to go back. And like, Why did you do this? There's nothing really unique enough about Paladin to justify this no multi-classing business. Whatever. I just have a fundamental problem with the prestige classes in the first place anyway, so I'll just keep my mouth shut. But It should be clear that I do as well. It is, but you can actually articulate your problems, whereas I feel like I cannot as well articulate my issues with them because it mostly comes down to me whining about system mastery being so important and having to know which prestige class you want to you take 
as you're making your first level character. That is 500% a realistic issue to have with them. I don't disagree with a word you just said. It is a it is a mess. I am not here for required system mastery. And ultimately, like if you had to name one thing that burned me on all of the third edition, it was that system mastery left me behind. Mm-hmm. I literally do this for a living and it left me behind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it just, it isn't interesting enough as a, an end unto itself for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and as the DM, you get stuck in having to have system mastery over all of the PCs and NPCs. And I mean, look at, look at these built NPCs that we had, just a last chapter in this yeah, book man. we're looking at right now and they're a whole page you know that's just that's just not i'm i'm not i'm not here for it the thing that i liked about fourth edition and i know it required some system mastery too but the thing about fourth edition that was great is i don't have to memorize all the possible powers that my players could take you with their characters if they say i'm going to use this power and i don't know what that power is i just ask them what does that do because we know that I can't memorize the 12 or 1500 powers that are possible, right? Yeah. And fourth edition somehow seemed easier to me because of that. Because I relied on my players to just have their card right there. They can just read it right off the card. There's no flipping through a book. There's no whatever. They're just, they got it right there. Yep. And so I don't have to know it necessarily. Granted, ones that get used over and over, of course, you learn just from repetition. But um, to me, that's a lot more, for me, personally that was a lot more palatable than third edition where i couldn't do that yeah. well, i mean i suppose i could have but that's not how at the time that's not how the the sort of uh the environment was that wasn't the atmosphere around the game well and especially right. for you like you took a break from D mm-hmm. right exactly uh, getting back on that train mm-hmm. was such a like such a game of catch up that uh, yeah no like of course it was daunting and impossible mm-hmm. it was practically meant to be right right yeah yeah and that's a problem for me like oh, i as it should so the next the next section is pc organizations um and seeing this I'm, I'm a bit but we've already done businesses and uh, mystery cults that mm-hmm. are supposed to be mystery cults so where are we going with this right yeah but they're going to tell you how to start an ancient order, I guess. Sure. Um, I've certainly known plenty, oh my god, plenty, of teams of players in LARPs who want to come into an existing LARP and introduce a new organization with an ancient and storied past. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes that works, but not most of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in a tabletop game where there isn't a set of players and a canon beyond the people who are sitting at the table, it could work a lot better. Yeah, I mean, it can. Uh, the thing I appreciate about this section is the examples. Yep. Uh, more so than anything else. Um, I do agree it feels misplaced. It should have been right after the businesses part. Uh, because it, it is a cer- certain sort of different type of business. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we need to talk about the fact that their example is four pages long for the first one. Well, yeah. Four pages long for the second one. Like, holy crap, that's a, that's a gigantic example. 
Right. But I think, but see what they're doing is spelling out, you know, here's what the DM's going to have to create. Yeah. Around this topic. Right. Um, and you know, whether, whether that, whether you agree with that or not, you know, whether, whether you agree that the DM should do that or not is sort of neither here nor there. They're giving you the full on example. Yeah. Um, which, okay, whatever. That's fine. I guess, you know, I, I do like, I like the examples. I do. Cause I feel like, okay, you know, cause these, these examples are removed from Canon, right? Right. So if you're a DM who's been playing third edition and, and you've been playing in one particular world, Forgotten Realms or Greyhawk or whatever, and these examples are not related to any of those settings. This is showing you how to create an organization in a setting that's not related to the stuff that you've already seen in the canon settings you've been playing in. Sure. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. Because then it's followed by guilds, which, uh, you know, <laughs> again, uh, so businesses, organizations, and guilds, why are they not all just in the same section? Yeah. Um, well, so, so one thing that drives me a little crazy about the PC organizations is the uh, entry requirements. Mm-hmm. Why would... <laughs> So, so I kind of understand the idea of, um, well, we want a shared identity. So here's mm-hmm. the thing you have to qualify for. But if this is your concept, then all of the PCs need to be able to join at the start of play. Right. That you can't have PC members of the adventuring party who aren't part of the PC organization in a table of uh, three to seven people. That's it's mm-hmm. too far out of the circle, right? Yeah. But yeah. you also can't qualify for the Order of the Ancient Mysteries um, at first level in any class except monk. Base fortitude reflex and will saves plus one. Knowledge history one rank. Well, he, how? Oh, you want me to wait till third level to join this? Mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> anyway, whatever. It's just it's not what I would do. I think it's um a pointless error. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, to me it seems obvious on its face that that didn't serve a purpose. But that's fine, whatever. Um so so right, we get guilds. I I am certainly on the record as loving guilds as a concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our, our great successes in the LARP that we ran was that we made uh, membership in trade guilds really materially important. And you could play a member of that, like that trade without joining the guild. You're going to have a very different play experience, not necessarily better or worse, but really different. That that was something that we definitely had people tell us wouldn't work. And that it came off at all is something I'm terribly proud of. And mm-hmm. so I'm into guilds is the throughput here. Um, right. So, so this section, the very first part of it is just these little short, like one, one paragraph description of, 
you know, like he- headings, arcane guilds, criminal guilds, government guilds. And then it gives examples of the types. And then here's the thing that irks me about this section. It gives examples. So the arcane guild, it gives a little description of what an arcane guild, what the meaning of that is. Uh, some examples, mages guilds, alchemist guild. Okay. Some associated classes, you know, if you're going to be in this guild, you probably have these classes. Uh, associated skills, and then the sample contact. You know who the sample contact is? It's Agosti of the Shadow Shore, who is uh, the um, wizard, level 5 wizard, that is the sample contact on table 5.1, page 154. By the way, we're on page 223. Okay. Uh, And every single one of these guild types has one of those sample contact people as the sample contact. (laughs) Like, okay, why didn't you integrate this section with that part at page 150 then well this so 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 this has a reason right one writer wrote both sections mm-hmm. and wrote them in a certain he probably he let's go back to the credits page he wrote them in a certain order <laughs> right and uh the developers didn't come back and um hook things up a different way mm-hmm. um, because they were cutting and pasting from one manuscript into you know two different chapter sections and they had to probably rewrite a bunch of stuff and then like really smooth integration was just not their priority mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um yeah i i hear the like, words you're saying I mean, this is not a short book <laughs> I, I i agree <laughs> um and, and you know uh i'm not saying that they did it right i'm <laughs> saying um Having now been a developer, it's very easy for me to sympathize with their problem. Mm-hmm. Well, so here, right. So, and and here's here's the funny thing about this. I'm actually totally okay with it if they freaking did it in all the other sections too, right? Sure. Like relate these same types, you know, sample contact stuff to the last section, to the organization section, or oh, to the, you know what I'm saying? Well, for sure, but they didn't have the same writer for those. Right, right, right. I, I get it. I get it. I'm just saying, right? Like. This is this is yeah I know this is a problem with the way you produce a very large book that's written by very many people. Yep. I, I'm I'm railing again. You know I'm tilting at the windmill here, right? I know I know I am, yeah, but yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. No. And, and like, you're not wrong. I'm I'm laughing about human frailty here. Is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like that situation. That developer situation and those writers situation is so, so human and so real to me right this moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For those of you wondering what we're talking about, Brandis was a developer on the Southlands products that are being produced. Specifically the Player's Guide. Not the Player's the Guide. Book for uh, the Southlands Kickstarter, which is probably going to be over by the time this, this podcast comes out. So then um, after the guild section, which, you know, the guild section is fine. Uh, it's, it's, it's decent. Um, if you have no clue what, um, what a, a mercantile guild or a government guild would be, um, I'm not sure how long you've been playing fantasy RPGs. However, if you don't know what a psionic guild would be, I can accept that. And so maybe this section might help you a little bit. Um, eh, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, and then there's a section on joining guilds and entry requirements and getting a loan uh, and, uh, you know, 
paying dues and, you know, uh, sort of bookkeeping, housekeeping kind of stuff. And that's fine. But then there is this section on guilds in the world and their lore and how you can integrate those types of things into your game, which I like this section. Yep. Um, so, so I really wish they had given a table of uh, guild names and how to construct guild names. Mm-hmm. Because this is something I looked into when I was working on the LARP, and and the the name structure of London trade guilds is so amazing. <laughs> it's so like fascinating and over the top in its language, and I'm sure it made perfect sense in. About the year 1300, mm-hmm. and they haven't changed it since, and it's great. I love it. It, it carries so much atmosphere to me that I wish it were in here. Yeah. <laughs> because let me tell you, a lot of worshipful as the, the first adjective. Like, I love that. <laughs> but there's like, uh, it's such a rabbit hole of of things to read about and just little technicalities mm-hmm. and traditions that right. accrued and like where and when you march. I love that stuff because right. it's so bonkers to me. It's, you know, an American who <laughs> like has never been part of a labor union. Right. right? Because let's explain what, what the free and freelance writer means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh free from money uh no uh that's not right um yeah <laughs> anyway um there are new feats here also uh while you're looking at the london <laughs> guilds um, the, the new feats are favored in guild and guild master and all i see in this is but i was just saying how i wanted feats to replace themselves it'd be so perfect all right yep guild member <laughs> guild master we're good <laughs> yep yeah i i kind of like this section i feel like it, it it starts to some of these start to get a little into the you know the the rules minutia hootie who oh um, for sure it does oh my god and 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 that i can do without but you know it's it was third edition so that's you just it, it's par for the course Government guild for favorite in guild, you gain a plus one bonus in diplomacy and intimidate checks when dealing with members of any guild, including your own. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, thanks. Cool. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I definitely was hoping there'd be more ways to get a plus one to diplomacy. <laughs> and and to be clear, what I mean by that is there are too many ways to get a plus one to diplomacy, so that power gaming diplomacy is uh, one of the most aggravating ways to creatively wreck a third ed, third ed game. Half off bard, look it up. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, so then we get to chapter seven. Chapter seven. Magic items. Yeah, man. Um, so you were talking about magic items that level up with you, and I mean, I played in an Earth Dawn campaign for uh, like a year. So it was it was a yearish, and. So that's a really big thing in Earth Dawn. Um, that, that's one of the core ideas of Earth Dawn is that you invest XP into your magic item to progress it on its own track. Well, this has you bond with the magic item um, using 
the ritual of blood or the ritual of dread or the ritual of faith. Uh, those are great names, by the way. Bring bring it on. Mm-hmm. Ritual of faith, <laughs> ritual of fire, ritual of honor, ritual of magic, ritual of purity, ritual of song. You suppose that might be some um, class designations? Mm-hmm. Well, well, really, they're skill designations, which is sort of odd. But anyway, they're, they're rituals for bonding with the item. And that's pretty cool. And then you can buy the true bond feet to make it stronger. Sure, there's got to be a new feet. Um, it's third edition. If you don't have a feet, well, it, yeah, what are you even doing? Your job. Yeah, yeah uh, that's quite correct. But right, it, it gives you, you know, the, the ritual gives you an additional thing. Um, maybe it's a bonus on saving throws against the thing, or maybe it's resistance to the thing. Um, as long as you have that item, um, mm-hmm. and it's you know something else to spend a bunch of your money on, mm-hmm. and you know much like the companion spirits, this is totally great. Make it the core of a new setting, right? Like this certainly isn't meant to like suddenly surface as a thing in Crin or the realms. Mm-hmm. Or uh, Earth, or whatever. That's that's not what's going on here. They're they're offering you whole new like foundations for your own homebrew setting. I mean, the the thing is, like, the, th- these are like the these are kind of cool because, like, the task that you do. For example, I'm looking at the ritual of dread. Okay, so um, you forge a bond with your chosen weapon by overcoming your natural fear of life draining effects. Okay, whatever. Uh, you have to have six ranks of intimidate. The task that you have to do is use the chosen weapon to deliver the killing blow against a creature with the energy drain special attack. For example, a vampire whose challenge rating is at least two higher than your character level. Okay, that's like the Herculean task. No, it's great. Right? Yeah. Like you want to give your party something to have to accomplish that does not have to do with a world-spanning danger or a villain who is you know trying to take over all the kingdoms or whatever. You have a really powerful kind of mythic level creature that is relatively rare that you have to slay as part of your task to bond with this item. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it strikes me a little oddly right now because I'm playing through Dark Souls Remastered. And mm-hmm. so this is <laughs> this is the modify weapon effect, right? Right. Where, where you get the boss's soul and you use it to make your weapon extra cool. And mm-hmm. I love that. It's great. Like I'm, I'm so in love with this being here uh, because it is so much more engaging. Um, like again, this would be such a great thing for a single hardback adventure. Right. Right. Like oh my god, I would, I'd be in love with this. Like you find an armory of weapons that you know were all of this one type or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's really, really cool. Well, like, like, and and most of these are really great, but a couple of them are kind of eh. But here's the ritual of fire, the task for the ritual of fire. While holding the chosen item, you voluntarily fail a saving throw against a fire spell cast by an enemy whose caster level equals or exceeds your character level. Okay. The spell must be capable of dealing damage equal to at least half of your full normal hit points. 
and you may not use any means, including spells, to protect yourself from the fire damage dealt by the spell. You need not survive the damage to complete this task. <laughs> Great. I mean, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. Meanwhile, the ritual of magic, the task, you must successfully counter or dispel a spell cast by an enemy whose caster level is at least two higher than your own. Yawn. Okay. Cool. Yeah, great. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Right. But you get my idea. These are story seed elements right well, here. For sure they are. For sure they are. Um, and may, let me tell you, that next section, just the header, I already know I'm, in, I'm into this content. The magical locations as treasure? Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> that is my deal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wasn't there a t- weird, magical, weird terrain thing in the UA book, too, that we just looked at? Uh, you know, probably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I could have told you more certainly, except that um, a few minutes ago, this was a full glass of Di Serrano, and now oh. it's the other kind. <laughs> I see. I understand the problem, good sir. I wouldn't say it's a problem. <laughs> yes, I understand the situation. <laughs> um, but anyway, so what do you love about this? Oh, you know what had a magical location thing? Tasha's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tasha's absolutely is about magical locations. It's not using them as treasure, though. It's using them as exploration challenges. I mean, I am 500% into that, mm-hmm. uh, as every school child is going to find out once I release my uh, Tasha's breakdown on it, which <laughs> is going to be a little while because I have some other uh, contracts to finish up. Yeah. But um, the like magical location as treasure is delivering on the promise of the exploration pillar of play like mm-hmm. nothing before or since. Right. Holy it is unbelievable as just delivering on a promise. Um, you found something cool and it has an ongoing benefit for you. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you can still use that, uh, that cool thing even after you leave the location. Mm-hmm. No, it can't be a long time after you've left the location. Right, and let me tell you, the names of the cool locations are 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 here to impress. Right, Altar of the Dreamwalker, Dragonheart Tomb, Ember of Dragonfire, Everflame, Footsteps of Coralon. Like, yeah, go on. But again, I'm playing Dark Souls Remastered right now, and so these all sound like zones in right. Dark Souls. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's one I could put into my product that you mentioned earlier: Heart of Ice. In a manner similar to its antithesis, the Heart of Flame, a Heart of Ice is a place imbued with the magical power of cold. The Heart of Ice results from the death of a powerful being with the cold subtype, the presence of powerful cold magic, or a long open gate or portal to a plane. So here's the thing. If you end up defeating Oral, her abode, her home, her, her mortal plane location becomes this location. Yeah, yeah. That's very good. And it's awesome. <laughs> That's very good. Yeah. Um, I mean, even arguing that you should just tack, tack something like this onto um, the island where she's dwelling while she's there. Mm-hmm. Like, right. We're talking yeah. about her, her lair effects, right? That's, yeah, what, yeah, yeah. that's yep. what we're saying. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, it's her lair effects. But in this case, after she's gone, you can actually take some of that. And that is so amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Like, right. If you want to motivate some PCs to go dragon hunting, tell them they can steal the lair effects. Yeah, right. Mind yeah, yeah. blown. Exactly. Boy, this episode is full of advice. 
yeah. <laughs> and new ideas. <laughs> yeah, because this book is great, actually. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's not all hits, because mm-hmm. it's not the fourth edition DMG2. Folks, stay tuned, because yeah. <laughs> we've got something for you. Also, my language is getting really bad. That's um, okay. I've got a good beep button. That's very good. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, this is really good content. This, mm-hmm. You can do mm-hmm. really good stuff with this, which Watsi will proceed to not do. Right, of course. But, you know, whatever. That's okay. But, like, man, go hunt down the legendaries so you can steal their powers? Right. What a pitch for a game. Yep. Oh, yep. my God. I cannot say enough good about that. You have to make a choice, right? You have to make a choice. You're either going to use their powers and you will eventually become them, or you can either trap their powers away so no one else can become them, or you can destroy it. Or, or you bind the soul to a weapon. Or you bind it to a weapon. There you go. Like that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we wasting our lives on, right. on not doing this? Like, that's right. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I know what's happening next in my uh, main campaign. We'll take it to the run again. All right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I have so many adventures I want to write, and like, I'm just gonna start stealing from this. It's gonna be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, these are just so good. They just keep going, too. It's pages and pages and pages Mm -hmm. of really, really top-notch ideas here. I don't know who wrote this, but kudos. Mm -hmm. I I hope you're listening, unlike the section previous. (laughs) After after this great section, uh, we get into the armor special abilities. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm I'm trying to really understand what I'm looking at. I mean, it's just an extra piece to put on your armor, you know? Yeah. If you have, you know, spell trapping armor or energy immunity armor or, you know, it's, it's, um, eh, eh, whatever. It's, it's very, very mechanical. And I mean, some of them are cool effects, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it's just such a, uh, well, like, feels so very mundane after all the stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I love the idea of PCs having a little more, like, tinkering control over their gear Mm -hmm. as long as that is approached the right way. But this is hard to get much of a handle on and easy to bounce off of. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said, eh. Yeah, it's okay. It's fine. It's workable. It's fine. Oh, I'm I'm never here for energy immunities. And any, anybody who's ever read my stuff before knows that I will um, kick and scream about energy immunities. Yeah, uh, I, I like energy immunities. Like uh, Sly Flourish likes Heroes Feast. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that armor section is quickly followed by a weapon special ability section, which is very similar. Yeah, same Z's. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool, cool. Um, um, art is a little more over the top than usual. Eh, eh. There's not much of it, so it's okay. Yeah. Uh, like, in principle, um, I have a weapon themed around a thing, and I can do a thing to make it more themed around the thing. Right. Okay, sure. Just, this is a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like that whole weapon progress bar feeling is going to be handled a little more gracefully in fourth um, mm-hmm. because it does all fit into a very small stat space. So then they have these examples of specific weapons. Um, there's only a couple. <laughs> it's, right. it's 
really not all that fancy. Then there's some rings. I mean, you know, these are perfectly fine. They're workable. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing them as if they're poorly made or, or not, you know, not interesting, but you know, it's just deathly boring to read a, a weapon stat block like this. It's just not right. Well, and, and they're just like, there's nothing really shockingly great about them compared to other 3.5 items or compared to the magical stuff that we just, you know, the locations and the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a rough items and all, you know, it's, it's, this, this is a rough ending here because we had such a high, we're, we're in the trough now. Um, yeah. And then, and then there's a, some wondrous items, and you know, again, you know, some of them are cool. It's fine. That's fine. Um, so the t- there are templates. If you need templates, they have templates um, that you can have more modifiers on your stuff. Like, I'm not unsympathetic to wanting to modify things to hell and back. What's interesting about this, I guess, is not the mechanical effects, but the way the templates give everything an implied origin point, which is going to get brought into an actual just straight-up table in um, the 5e DMG. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Like this sort of uh, Feycraft, uh, Fire-shaped, Gloryborn, Gethcraft, uh, Pitspawn business is all going to show up in a table where you look at the magic item and you can study it to figure out where it came from. Because they, they care about like, I don't know that every table does this the way the book intimates that you ought, but the DMG at least cares about your magic item came from somewhere. Tell the story. Like, it doesn't need to be a big story, but at least know where it came from. Yeah, and I think you and I have talked about that before in terms of just enriching the story of a setting. Oh, it's, it's incredibly important best practices. That seems to be the kind of lesson that you teach again every three to four years. And part of that's because every three to four years, uh, there's a bunch of new players, especially now when the hobby's growing so wildly, um, but also because it's easy to get distracted and forget to implement all your best practices. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so the book closes out on artifacts. Um, they don't have anything new to say about artifacts that uh, the 3.5 DMG didn't already say. They're, this is just kind of a list of artifacts and kind of their their main shtick, which is fine, but I do feel like the the section in itself could have said something a lot more interesting about artifacts if they had focused on a single story and the maybe four or five artifacts that arise out of it. You know, your your sort of cast your ha- your hand of Vecna, your eye of Vecna, and two other widgets of cast or whoever, right? I mean, considering they spent what four pages on a thieves guild. Yes, accurate. Right, they could they could have done uh, this uh, slightly differently, but yeah, I mean, but it's uh, it's fine, uh, you know, whatever. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, and and there's a great piece of art with uh, f- uh, the group uh, fighting a Tarask and throwing the wand of Orcus into its open mouth. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's yeah, also an excellent prismatic spray. Yes, it is. It's a rainbow. It's wonderful. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, you know, it's good art. But uh, I mean, yeah, you know, so the book closes out kind of on a ho-hum note. Um, yeah. But it, that, that's because the, the portion in the beginning of this last chapter was just so fantastic. Yep. Um, just fantastic. Like Out of the whole book, it's the must read. Yeah. I, I'm going to say. Um, the book is a good reference. Like, I don't care who you are. If you care about 
good GMing, skimming mm-hmm. through this and finding the section that has what you personally need is a strong move. There are, there are really smart writers working on this, and they're bringing a lot of experience to the table, a lot of different experience to the table, and that that results in a good book. Um, it is an all hits. Okay, it's like what two? It's two hundred and fifty pages or something. Two hundred eighty. Two eighty. Yeah. So eighty-eight pages and counting the ad at the back. Yeah. So you're so you're talking about almost three hundred pages of yeah. So some of it's not a total hit, but yeah, yeah I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very good. It, it's it's a very strong book overall. Um, it isn't going to go down in history as the single greatest DMing supplement we've ever read because we're about to get to that one. That one is... Well, we still have another book in, in head of that, but... One, one more book in between here and there, but it's coming. Yeah. It's coming. This is, a clo- this is a close, though. This one has... If this one was slightly more... Less 3E... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, it, has, it has to have so much 3E-ism in it that it, it slightly pushes it over the edge of not the best for me. Yep. But... But a lot of the stuff in there is really good and e- very easily applicable to any edition of. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking of, oh, what could I do with that for my Castles and Crusades game? Yeah, man. And my Castles and Crusades game is basically a first edition D and D game. Yep. So you know, it's it's good. It's got good content in it. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think I've ever seen the idea of locations as treasure uh, sketched out as well as this. Mm-hmm. I'll mm-hmm. say. Um, but yeah, I, I really hope that everyone listening to this has enjoyed us going through it. Um, I think it'll be striking for people who, who listen to these sort of all in a row. Uh, if anybody does that, I don't know that anybody could handle that, but, uh, <laughs> look, just you and I talking to each other, it's got to get 75 but, hours of Brandis yeah. and Sam, Sam and Brandis. Oh my God. I'm absolutely sure that our joy and delight at this book is going to come out much more than our joy and delight in some of the other books. I'm absolutely sure that 75 hours of Brandis and Sam is actually banned by the Geneva convention. <laughs> if Brandis and Sam talk for 75 hours, please see your doctor. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and on that note, so next next episode we will discover and go through the fourth edition DMG, which um, I, I I don't know what the over under is on whether it's going to take us a long time. Honestly, I could do a two hour episode on why page forty two is the best page in game running. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> let's go ahead and sign out. So, Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on tribality.com or at brandisstoddard.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at brandisstoddard, and my Patreon is brandisstoddard. Excellent. I can be found on rpgmusings.com, and you can also find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, or you can find my products on the DMs Guild. And I think that's going to be the end of this episode. So, everybody, please wear your masks. Wear your masks. Wash your hands. Stay 10 feet away from everybody. And take care of yourselves. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your neighbors.
a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's Guides written for the previous editions of our... Um, Siri apparently decided that I'm talking to her. Hold on. <laughs> Thanks, Siri. <laughs>